0: Spending time with visiting teachers can be useful for reminding us and clarifying aspects of the practice, particularly the older generation of disciples of Ajahn Chah. They give us reflections on uh, how he taught, reminding us about the basic principles of practice of Dhamma Vinaya. They might also remind us why we came into the monastery to take up the training. We We are all here for a reason, a purpose. Sometimes it's out of faith in the Buddha and his teachings, sometimes out of faith in a living teacher, sometimes out of a wish just to improve our own meditation practice, and so on. We have different reasons, but we've all have, we all do have a reason. We have ideals. And this lifestyle of a Buddhist monk and practicing in the tradition of Lumpurcha. it's a very suitable way of living for developing our spiritual practice, training our hearts and minds with the goal of attaining happiness, peace. When we hear about the way Lompo Cha taught and Ran his monastery. As uh, we're reminded of how down-to-earth, pragmatic many of his teachings, practices were. Most of the bhikkhus who lived and practiced with him had a great faith and confidence in him as an enlightened teacher, an arahant even with many special qualities, special psychic powers, special knowledges which is an important background to why people were willing to live, practice with him and give up to the training, to the practice but in actual day-to-day teaching and running of the monastery As we know, he didn't talk much about attainments, he didn't emphasize them. He certainly didn't talk much about psychic ability. His teachings were much more practical and applicable for any of us, anyone coming into the robes, into the monastery, whether Thai or foreign, That maybe has been why his sangha and way of practice has become so popular, successful around the world. As we know, he didn't have any master plan to spread Buddhism around Thailand or around the world. It's happened naturally, organically. And that's because of this great wisdom uh, he used, worldly wisdom, spiritual wisdom in training others, teaching others, using the conventions, the f- monastic form, to help monks and nuns to, to practice for themselves, to learn for themselves, but using the form, using the structure. Obviously, he had a personal skill in doing this, in using the monastic training to teach the Sangha. But even without him personally being here anymore, it's as if some of him carries on, lives on, through the Sangha and through the way of practice. And that's our good fortune uh, that we've come in contact with this, probably all of us will appreciate this, especially the more you practice, the longer you practice, you appreciate the value of this way of training. But as I mentioned, often it's nothing, wasn't anything special or, um, you know, the the higher dhammas and the aspects of the, practice of meditation that are harder to describe in words weren't weren't always what he was emphasizing or talking about. The way of training often seemed very, very simple, direct. His teachings were very direct, pointing to very obvious things and often just reminding monks what they should be doing, how to train in the vinaya how to develop mindfulness, how to reflect, contemplate. Not necessarily very uh, always giving wise explanations of deep and profound aspects of the Dharma, but often just pointing people just to the very truth that's arising in the present moment coming back, bringing them back to their own state of mind in the present moment. how mindful we can be from moment to moment, or how we can lose our mindfulness and get caught up into our own craving and defilement. A lot of his teaching was pointing to this, bringing people back to the present moment. So we have this way of training that's become Familiar, not just in this monastery, but around the other branch monasteries. We use the training in the Vinaya, learning the rules, putting them into practice in daily life. Uh, learning the Pariyati, studying, sutras, listening to Dhamma teachings, explanations, discussion. And again, using that as a basis for practice not as an end in itself, not studying for study's sake or for to become a great scholar maybe, but more for supporting the practice for the development of wise reflection and the development of understanding of the principles that underlie good practice of the Eightfold Noble Path that is leading to the end of suffering. He encouraged us to put effort into whatever we do, do in the monastery. So learning the Vinaya, we are encouraged to learn the Moka as a training in itself, just to develop mindfulness, learning the chants, the words, remembering, training our memory, developing samadhi in the chanting of the Patimokkha. And anyone who's done it will know it can be the cause, of the arising of samadhi. Also for reminding us of the rules themselves. If you learn the well you you're learning the Pali, but you tend to look at the translation, the explanation, so it helps you to remember the rules themselves, and if you've invested all that time learning the patimoka, then in your daily life you're more likely to practice and follow those rules, respect the rules, and see them as an integral part of your training for the higher dhamma of ending suffering. Whether you learn the chant or not, we still have to learn the rules, abide by them and use them as a basis for our training. We learn to follow the monastic routine, and you know, they say the schedule, the different ways of training. We learn to meditate using different techniques. So over and over again, Lumpur Cha's teaching was bringing us back to these basic principles, dhamma vinaya, training in the, what we call the dry sikha, sila, samadhi and panya, refining our knowledge and understanding but then also refining our mindfulness, developing gradually, developing samadhi and developing insight. They so encouraged us to do things well, you know, learning, if we learn a chant we'll learn it well, learn to memorise that chant fully you learn the right pronunciation, learn to be able to chant from memory because it's much more rewarding if you do that if you learn a chant, whether it's the evening chants the reflections, the Bhattimoka, the Puritas you're remembering the words of the Buddha or commentaries that point to the Dhamma and those words, some of them will stay in your mind, maybe for your whole life. You know, the, the things we learn as monks, if we put effort into learning them well, they're a lifetime investment. You learn to chant well, well, thirty years later, after learning the Patimoku, you might still remember it. Reflections that you've learned in your first year or two as a monk can stay with you your whole life. They can pop up at the right moment to remind you of Dhamma when you may be losing sight of the Dhamma and craving, defilements, taking over your mind. In the same way, the practices we learn, you you learn to sew robes, wash robes, fold robes, look after your robes, wear the robes. You learn to look after your arms bowl, fire, your bowl and so on. All these basic practices you learn, Ajahn Chah emphasises you learn them, learn to do them well, there's a lot of them you'll carry through as long as you're a bhikkhu and if you stay a bhikkhu your whole life, you'll keep up those practices your whole life. They're not like, uh, say, just kind of kindergarten practices that you learn for a year or two and then set aside. If you're really looking to train yourself, well then you put effort into them, learn to do them well, and then they become part of your daily routine, part of the way you do things, whether you're here or in another monastery, as you go around the world. Because that's what bhikkhus tend to do these days, we travel more, travel is easier, and we can go further because of technology. But you take your practices with you similarly if you don't put effort into learning the chanting, learning to look after your bowl, your robes, all those sort of basic things, well maybe one day you find you don't have a lot to help you and support you when you do move around from monastery to monastery or even stay on your own. Maybe there's not much left of the bhikkhu if you don't have these basic practices. And jen Chao was always encouraging us to develop samana-sanya. So looking after your bowl and robes, learning to chant, learning to meditate, both samatha and vipassana meditation. know, these are the nuts and bolts of being a bhikkhu. And you take them with you wherever you are, however long you've been a bhikkhu. Another very essential part of our training is charyawata, we learn to serve the sangha, because the sangha is one based on hierarchy, just of whoever comes into the monastery first sits first, whoever ordains first becomes the senior one, whoever ordains second, third and so on, they become the junior, and it's just natural over time as the sangha expands, we have monks who are much more senior to you, living in the same monastery. Not just the teacher, but sometimes other monks. And Jinchai emphasised the value of service through a water, washing the bowls of senior monks, washing the robes of senior monks, assisting them, because it develops a very strong sangha, that sense of mutual respect. Respect for senior monks, and also there's something you get in return you get contact with senior monks. They can share reflections, they can give you support when you need advice or having a hard time, and so on. It's a very beautiful thing to see as well in this world, which tends to be nowadays a world based around individualistic pursuit of happiness, wealth, rights, entitlements, and so on. The act of service, which is actually practiced you know, physically, you sometimes you do things for another bhikkhu. It's kind of against the train of the kalesas, which are you know, what run the world and people's hearts. It's teaching you in a very direct, obvious way in your daily life to give up some of your own selfish desires based on Kilesa. They're very useful training, especially in the early days when we come into the monastery. If you live in Thailand, so if you live at a monastery like Wat Nombapong, Jin Chao's monastery, you always hear the phrases, dhanha dittimana, craving, conceit, and the attachment to views. Are the the causes of suffering in the minds of newly ordained bhikkhus? Obviously, they might still be there in senior bhikkhus, but tend to be a little bit reduced or more managed. But in the beginning, this is what's causing us suffering when we come into the monastery. We all know it: the new person is always full of views and opinions, desires and wishes. They have their strong self-view, comparing themselves to others, better than, same as, worse than. Charyawata is a very good practice just to help manage craving, conceit and views. Because you have to let go of some of that if you're going to serve somebody else. If that other senior bhikkhu you're serving happens to be one you don't particularly like, or your character is not the same, you don't know, particularly connect with, all the better because it will expose your craving, your ditimana, mana, and you have a chance to let go of it quicker. See it, see the suffering it causes, maybe the reactions you have in your mind as you're practicing a charyawatta, but then you let go of it. Just one example of how Lumbarchara taught and encouraged us to practice as a way to get right down to the to the direct practice of bringing, seeing kilesa, observing kilesa, and letting it go. Seeing craving as it arises in daily life, not just with your chariota, but any aspect of the monastic form. You know, the other way you would train. Emphasize in training is just the routine. You're attending meetings of the Sangha. This is entirely what the Buddha taught. You meet together, you come together, you leave, disperse together. Whether it's chanting, meditation, the meal, chores, any aspect of, sort of some, any any Sangha meeting, That's how we practice. So it exposes again, exposes craving, mana. Maybe there's certain practices we don't like, don't want to attend, don't want to get involved with. So you start to see craving come up. Some people have trouble getting up in the morning. They don't like to attend events in the morning, morning meetings, chanting, morning chores. Some people have trouble late at night. They don't want to be around late at night. Some people are just distracted. They don't turn up at different times that are set for the meal or whatever. Obviously in the course of our daily life there may be times when we have duties or reasons that we can't attend some Sangha meeting. That's just taken for granted, but the way Ajahn Chah taught was: if if you don't have any particular reason, then you ask yourself, why am I not turning up on time? Why am I not there? Or why am I not there? And start to look at your mind. What's underlying your act, actions in that particular case? and one time, he gave a talk. I remember listening to it. He said, if you turn up to the meditation meeting after the senior monk, the abbot, the teacher, you should feel embarrassed. If you think about the teacher, how much more work they have to do to run the monastery, teach sangha and laity, etc. If they can turn up to a meeting and you're turning up after, why is that? Obviously there may be a, a genuine reason when we're sick or Having to do some other work for the Sangha or something. But if it's just through our carelessness or heedlessness, we'll become aware of that. That's craving. Maybe we've been caught into some distraction, or maybe we're just giving into our mood. We're feeling lazy, or depressed, or fed up, whatever. It's these very ordinary situations which start to expose our state of mind for us to work with, to practice. Sometimes to be patient with, sometimes, sometimes to actually go against the train of our thinking, our mood, our view. Just very simple aspects of monastic life help us do this. This is the way Ajahn Chah taught. You use the routine, the meetings, the practices to see where your mind's at. Are you with the practice that you're doing? if you're eating your meal a meal isn't very long it's only 15-20 minutes you eat your meal within that 15-20 minute period how many times does your mind drift away into thinking even as you're eating daydreaming fantasizing, planning caught into moods or sometimes just the desire for food makes you just want to Speed through your meal, eat it very quickly, just through pure desire. The meal is something we do every day. You you eat your food every day, but it's in a structured way. We have a, a set time, we turn up, we eat the meal in a certain way, we distribute the food, receive the food, distribute it, eat in the bowl. It's an ideal controlled situation where you can see your mind at work can see if craving is arising, arising or not. Every day you can do it. It's a bit like a controlled experiment. You know, yesterday your mind was all over the place. Well today, where is my mind? Is it with the food? Is it with the eating? Or is it somewhere else? A lot of the practice is very repetitive, very simple, straightforward activities But that's ideal for seeing the mind and seeing craving at work. And if you learn to become aware of your attitudes and your, what's going on, your mental activity as you follow the routine, follow the daily practices, as well as you know when you're at your kuti, how well you spend your time sitting, walking, what are you doing at your kuti in your own time. If you use all of these as an opportunity to practice, well, then it's a very good system of training. As I mentioned, he said, whatever you do, try to do it well. Whether it's a simple task like just cleaning or washing your bowl or the more refined, more challenging tasks like walking meditation, sitting meditation, try not to do them in a perfunctory meaning you're just doing it to fill in the time because you've been told to do something or because you feel it might be a good idea. Actually use every activity to develop mindfulness, to observe craving arise, observe your mind. Obviously a lot of the time we can't just let go of our craving, our moods. We have to be patient. That's another... Reminder he always gave, be patient. Often that's all you need to do with certain moods, certain states of mind, you just patiently watch as you pace up and down on the walking meditation path. You patiently watch as you sit, you patiently watch as you clean the hole or whatever. And you'll find the mood passes, arises and passes away and you get that insight into a nature. When we study the suttas and the Vinaya, we get the theoretical knowledge from the Buddha's enlightened mind. The Buddha already told us the five khandhas this body and mind, nama, rupa, are anicca, dukkha, anatta. The five khandhas are just arising and passing away according to karma. The body is just made up of the four elements. Nobody owns it. It's not self. It's just dukkha because the elements are constantly changing. They never stay stable. So They constantly give us pain and discomfort. And it's impermanent. We already know that. But then we're having to bring our minds to see it in daily life, know it in daily life to train the mind to see, understand these teachings. So we use the monastic training as a backdrop for this, to see the the dukkha of a human body. We're always wriggling around. We can't sit still for very long. Pain comes. can't walk for very long, we get tired. We get hot, we get cold, we get hungry, thirsty, all of this is where craving arises and you know, before your meal every day just watch to see how craving arises the desire for food just for food itself or for particular kinds of food you know, and that's the craving is what takes over the mind the actual need of the body is one thing so we do have to eat but then what we think about it is separate The preferences, I like this food, I don't like that food. I want this, I don't want that. That's separate from just hunger and the need to sustain hunger, overcome hunger. So you use the wise reflection, you I eat not for fun, not for beautification, not for fattening, only for the maintenance and nourishment of this body. It's bringing mindfulness and wise reflection into a very simple, repetitive, daily act of eating. If you do that well, by the end of your meal, maybe you're more peaceful than the beginning. You have more samādhi than at the beginning. It sounds strange, and most people find they've completely lost their samādhi by the end of the meal. And hence, go off having filled the bellies and start talking enjoying things, doing other things, now that they've got what they wanted. Ajahn Chah used to say, well that's the heedless way to do it. The actual, the careful way, the mindful way is to maintain mindfulness, not let the mind fall into craving. With that level of restraint, effort, mindfulness, by the end of the meal maybe you're so peaceful, you don't want to talk to anyone, or do anything, other than just carry on maintaining mindfulness. Mindfully wash your bowl, collect your robes and head off to your kuti maybe or to whatever other activity you have to do. A lot of Ajahn Chah's teaching very simple, very direct. Where does craving arise and how does it affect us? Well, it leads us to want to eat more and have more variety, more amount of food, talk more, sleep more. So the teaching he would use perhaps most often is eat little, speak little, sleep little. It's basically giving us a, an instruction to go against craving and how it affects us. What does craving do? It makes you talk a lot. When we're happy with you know, Gama Dunha and excited, planning, we're stimulated in that way where we talk based on that. When we're called into Vipa Vodanha, well, we also talk. We complain, we gossip, backstab, and so on. When we're enjoying ourselves, we're getting plenty of food, getting the things we want, the requisites we want. We talk a lot, we're happy, we're stimulated and we're not getting on. Maybe we go into a, a silence based on aversion. There's different ways craving will come up, but it will affect us. What we talk about, how much we talk, socializing. Sometimes it's just the pain or discomfort of the body. We seek distraction, so we go and find someone to talk about. Sometimes it's more subtle. You know, the worldly dumbness, the desire for reputation, desire for pleasure of company. So we go off looking for lay people. Ajahn Chah used to say, as monks become more senior, they're always trying to hang around the kitchen, talking to lay people. Maybe they give some Dhamma reflections, but there's also that desire to get some lay support, get things from the lay people, look at the lay people, talk to them, indulge in that. So it's one of those amazing things at Wat even to this day, you never see monks hang around the kitchen. It's been one practice that's been very well preserved at Wat Monks don't go off to the nun section to talk. They can live in the monastery and hardly ever even see a nun, let alone talk to a nun, and they don't hang around the kitchen. If you go to Wat in the middle of the day, the kitchen is empty. Even after the meal you never see monks going over to the kitchen. It's just one of those monastic forms or cultures that become established that it's not the right thing to do because it's following craving. Eat little, sleep little, talk little. These are reflections in themselves. If you stay at Wapapong, you get that morning bell or the drum depending on the era at 3 a.m. You can never get much sleep at Wat Even to this day if I go and stay there, you just sleep a couple of hours at night. You tend to, you know, the earliest you might go to sleep at night might be 10 o'clock. Usually it's later. Often 2 a.m. you're already up again if you're at Wabupong 2am already monks are walking around candles are lit it's a place you don't sleep in the middle of the day it's not easy to sleep either often there's things you have to do or you're just out of embarrassment you want to be sitting and walking you don't want to be sleeping there's a place that has a reputation you don't talk much lay people you don't talk much amongst yourselves you wash your bowl, quietly separate go off and do your practice you don't sleep much you don't eat much you eat mindfully in your bowl and then that's it for the day, you're gone these are the basic trainings that lead to strong mindfulness, strong commitment to the practice and lead to insight. You know, it's support, these are the supportive conditions for our practice. Ajahn Chah said sometimes monks would come out to, come to him and complain that they wanted to just practice on their own, say on a ret- in a retreat situation. And of course that might be appropriate sometimes stay in a hermitage or in a cave he said if you're in the monastery and you come out to the evening meeting there's a meditation and then there's a chanting maybe a talk, maybe not if you think about it if you can't maintain your mind in a wholesome state through that then don't expect to be able to maintain your mind in a wholesome state if you go off and live on your own in a cave or a hermitage somewhere This is almost like a a daily uh, measurement reflection on where is your practice. If you come out to the meeting, if there is a meeting and you're sitting there with negative mind states complaining about other monks, complaining about the monastery, one form of craving or another or just fantasizing about things, planning where you want to go in the future and so on. If that's how you're spending your time, we well, are just following craving. This will not lead to samadhi, this will not lead to any higher Dhammas, as long as you follow craving. So you take it as a challenge. Say, so if you come to a meeting, morning meeting, evening meeting, can you maintain your mind with wholesome Dhammas throughout that whole meeting, not give in to the hindrances? Not given to sleepiness, not given to aversion, not given to fantasies based on sensual craving, and so on. That's your challenge. He you said if you can do that, you can maintain your mind in a wholesome state for an hour or two. Well, you'll already be in samadhi. That's how samadhi arises, it arises out of these practices maintaining mindfulness as you go through your daily routine, washing your bowl, eating, cleaning, sitting, walking meditation, if you maintain mindfulness then this is where samadhi will grow, where the mind becomes firm. As the mind becomes firm with the continuity of mindfulness, wholesome states of mind, then there's a chance for insight and deep insight as well. Actually a chance to abandon craving, not just recognize craving or have to put up with it with patience but actually abandon craving, which is the aim of our practice and this is what leads on to Maga Pala Nibbāna it's the abandoning of craving how do we do that? Well we maintain our mindfulness first and little by little like that fisherman Najan Chā used to say you know, the fisherman who sort of got a fish in his net it's under the water, he knows there's a fish there but he has to gradually pull the net together, pull it in until he's got it. It's like that, you're gradually pulling your awareness in back to your own five senses, to your body, your mind, the Nama Rupa in the present moment, through the day, through your activities, till you've got it right there. You've got your hands around the fish, till you've got your mindfulness and wise reflection Overseeing your mind from moment to moment, and it can't disappear anywhere. It can't disappear into sleep. Can't disappear into fantasies based on craving. It doesn't disappear into anger and aversion or different moods. But it's right there, and you're able to reflect with right view and let go of all the different kinds of craving and conceit and views that arise. For most people, that's an organic, kind of natural process of training, it's maybe many years of training, getting to the point where you can maintain that steadiness of mindfulness and keep reflecting on craving, and attachment that arises. A few people can do it very quickly. You know, it's not unheard of that you get an Anagarika, Wapapong, and you might attain deep states of Samadhi even jhana, it's possible. But most people don't. Most people are just quietly hauling in the net, pulling in the net, getting closer to the fish. And most people it's just a continuous practice, continuing to train yourself in these very basic ways, eating little, sleeping little, talking little, practicing a lot and doing the things you do well Over time, well, it starts to bring its reward. You get that sense of inner satisfaction, inner contentment that comes from practicing well and developing more wholesome states of mind. You gain more insight, start to see the impermanence of life, and the mind gets weary of following craving. And that's the purpose of it, is to give that clarity of insight. Clear vision, clear knowledge and vision of the way things are. Jnana dasana. If you maintain mindfulness and keep contemplating and using the monastic form as a backdrop, well, things become clearer and more obvious to the mind. And you don't have to struggle to do it, it's just obvious. This body, this mind are anicca, they're dukkha, they're anatta. You can't control things, you can't control your body, can't even control the mind. The way mental activity arises, passes away, the impermanent nature of the kandhas, the ownerless nature of the kandhas, you can't control any of that, and you can't control the world around you. These insights become more and more obvious. You start to see, you know, your own body is just, basically you're dragging a corpse around with you. There's no future for this body, it's just destined to get old, sick and die. You see that in your own body, you see that in other people's bodies. Everyone else in this monastery is just the same. We're all destined to get old, sick and die. Everyone who visits this monastery is destined to get old, sick and die. There's nothing to get infatuated with, lost in desire for, with craving. It's impermanent. Mental states are the same, mental activity, consciousness, so rising, passing away, according to causes and conditions. And keep reflecting on that, and nothing lasts. Even the peace, the more refined bliss of samadhi, it doesn't last. You come out of samadhi, you still have to deal with the pain of a body, the impingement of living in the world, sense impingement, But the samādhi is the foundation, the solidity of mindfulness that helps you to reflect on all that impingement, reflect on the dukkha of a body so that you don't, it doesn't give rise to craving anymore. You're abandoning craving and just knowing, oh, this is the way it is. Pain is just pain, pleasure is pleasure. Healthy body is like this, a sick body is like that build a new building, not long it starts to get old and age. Maybe I even have to replace it one day. Pleasant experiences come, then they go. If you keep reflecting, then there's nothing much that the mind is fooled by. We're no longer caught into the the delusions of a perception. Expecting the world to be different than it is. The mind comes in line with the world. So one one way they used to describe Ajahn Chah, they say he's, everything he does is like he's just normal. And the word in Thai is "bokati," means just kind of normal. The way understanding the way things are with a with a sense of normality and clarity in mind. So his behaviour is just normal. This is one of the attractions of living with a teacher, you know, enlightened teacher, is that exposes the unenlightened behavior, views, opinions, speech, actions of the people around them. The people living with Ajahn Chah constantly getting a reflection, oh, this is Kalesa. So the wise person with right view goes back, works harder to let go of their Kalesa. It's like in the time of the Buddha, it's the same. Maybe the Buddha himself, already having developed Bharami over so many lifetimes to become a fully enlightened Buddha, sometimes wouldn't have to teach that much in terms of giving long, elaborate descriptions of the Dhamma, talking to people for hours and hours. Sometimes just the purity of mind of an enlightened Buddha or an enlightened arahant is enough to expose the unenlightened minds of people around. So anyone dedicated to the practice it starts to become obvious, what is kilesa? Because if you're around somebody who doesn't exude or behave according to kilesa, then your own kilesa become exposed, don't they? Your greed, your anger, delusion becomes obvious. That's one of the good fortunes of coming across enlightened teachers is that they show you what enlightenment is like just through very ordinary normal behaviour undefiled behaviour and you get a very good reflection back on what is defiled behaviour and if you're honest and sincere in your practice well that's where you have to practice you turn back to look at your mind and work with it you can no longer blame others or put the responsibility on others you have to put it on yourself and accept mm, so this is my duty, my job so if we put effort into the practice we have a very good teacher, a very good way of training all that's left really is for us to, to do our practice and then experience the, the benefits of it for ourselves our families for society as a whole so for tonight i'll leave you with these reflections